Clemson fails to score a touchdown against Georgia. The ACC has one of the worst opening weekends ever. And what stood out from week one of the college football season? We'll discuss it all next. I'm Jay Smith, and this is After Further Review. And now, after further review, a Clemson student's perspective on sports. And the personal foul on number 99 of the defense after he tackled the quarterback. He's giving them business down there at the 15-yard penalty. Well, welcome in, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jay Smith, and this is another edition of After Further Review. Appreciate you tuning in, whether you are watching on Facebook or listening to the AFR podcast available Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Appreciate you tuning in. My goodness, man, what a week one of the college football season. So much to get into. We're going to talk about all the big games from the top 25. Uh, Obviously, the leadoff story here for this episode is the Clemson-Georgia game. I had the Tigers in this matchup. A lot of people did, uh, especially when you looked at the ESPN Pick'em percentage. But Georgia, to their credit, ended up squeaking out a extremely impressive win. Um, and we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts and, and get into the nitty-gritty of that matchup in, a, in just a minute. But just overall, like, you know, huge aerial view of this game. What, what are the uh, key takeaways? Okay, well, there's really uh, only a few. And that is, is that the first and most important thing is that neither team, whether it's Clemson, Georgia, right, they didn't really distance themselves from one another. So there wasn't a lot of separation, right? You're looking at a game that saw two field goals and a pick six, and that was it. There were no offensive touchdowns scored. Clemson was held to three points, the lowest uh, in the Dabo Sweeney era. It's the first time the Tigers have not scored a touchdown since the 2017 Sugar Bowl against Alabama, where they were beat, I think, 24 to six. So it's been a little while for Clemson. Now, this is also the first time in over a decade that Clemson has lost back-to-back football games. Yes, that's right. They lost to Ohio State in the CFP semifinal game last year, and now they've lost their season opener to the Georgia Bulldogs. Actually, the first excuse, this is the first season opening loss for Clemson since they played at Athens against Georgia back in 2014. So uh, I guess you could say that Clemson has a little bit of a curse when it comes to to playing Georgia now, dropping the last two games to the Bulldogs. But that's probably the biggest takeaway here, right, from this this game. There's a lot that we're going to get into, but but the key thing is both teams were extremely well-matched. It was a very close football game. Neither team really was able to distance themselves, and it really came down to field position, you know, where offenses were starting their drives from on the field, which Georgia was able to dominate throughout most of the first half and also into the second half in just terms of where Clemson's drives were starting from. There was a couple times where Georgia had pinned Clemson pretty deep. And so it became a back and forth uh, defensive uh, battle. And I was really, you know, standing there in Bank of America Stadium being one of the fortunate uh you know, people that got to go to the game, I was sitting there going, okay, eventually the dam is going to break. Clemson's going to give up a big play or Georgia's going to put together a drive. You know, eventually a, someone's going to get into the end zone. And it never happened. To Clemson's defense, you know, to their credit and to Georgia's defense's credit, neither team 
could get in the end zone for an offensive score. So a very close game. I, I've seen a lot of of, uh, of kind of sensationalized headlines after this one, and sort of you know hyperbole. You know, one of the the, the uh, I guess the funniest things. I've seen was a, uh, an article on ESPN talking about is this the beginning of the end of Clemson football and I'm, I'm not really sure how that's grounded in reality because we all know that Clemson is one of the most talented teams in the country and they just went toe to toe with a team that a lot of people are you know thinking will win a national championship this year right we we you know have talked about it a little bit on this show but uh, I've seen a lot of other other uh, you know people out there say you know if this is this is the year for Georgia. If they're finally going to get it done, it's been 40-plus years, been since 1980. They have a single national championship. This is the year for the dogs. Uh, so, again, I'm not sure how you can infer based off of this one-possession game, neutral site, week one, defensive slugfest, that Clemson's era on top of college football is, is over. I mean, we haven't even seen them play in the ACC yet. So again, there's there's a lot of sensationalized hyperbole out there, but what you really need to know and take away from this game is that Clemson is, you know, a few things, a few adjustments away from being able to go toe-to-toe with Georgia and possibly win a football game against the Bulldogs. Now, you can't discredit Georgia and, and how they performed because it was extremely impressive, both on the defensive side and on the offensive side. Um, and it felt like, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things about this particular game is that even though it was always within, you know, one possession, except for a little bit in the third quarter where Georgia went up 10 to nothing, it never felt like Clemson could wrestle back control, right? It always felt like, you know, Clemson was just barely scraping and clawing their way through the game and barely hanging on. And the scoreboard told a completely different story, right? The scoreboard was a tied ball game at, at zero all at the end of the first. Going into the locker room, it was seven to nothing after that pick six uh, that DJ threw in the second quarter. Georgia kicked a field goal in the third, and Clemson answered in the fourth with their own field goal, and that was it. That was a 10-3 ball game. We were out of there in 60 minutes. Um, so it was a, you know, if you enjoy defensive games, this has probably been one of the best defensive performances I have seen in probably the last six to seven years. It's really been a long time. And, and, uh, even, uh, you know, listening to some of the post-game press conferences and, and now the, the, the player press conferences for Clemson this week, especially on Monday, I heard James Skalski, uh, he had a, 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 what I thought was a really interesting quote. And he said that, in his mind, which again, Skalski's been around the block, he's been at Clemson a long time, he would know, uh, he said, you know, this is, in my, in his eyes, this is the best defensive performance that they've had since the 2018 National Championship game against Alabama. And, and I agree with that. I agree with that. I, you know, yes, there was, you know, a few things on, on defense that I think Clemson will have to work on, certainly. It wasn't a perfect uh, performance, but overall, extremely impressive. They kept Georgia out of the end zone. There there certainly were more drives by Georgia where they were going, you know, part of the distance of the field, right? Georgia had that uh, field goal attempt in the in the first quarter uh, that, that was that was no good. Um, so, you know, Georgia was able to move the ball more at will than Clemson, but overall, Clemson's defense kept them in this ballgame. And Clemson's defense, time and time again, allowed you know, 
gave the offense the opportunity to, to take hold of the lead and get momentum, and they weren't able to do that. Uh, after the game, uh, DJ Uyangale, he did uh, admit to playing poorly. He put a lot of the uh, blame on himself. He shouldered a lot of that responsibility. I think that's the sign of a leader. And listen, the guy went 19 for 37, completed, was it, 52% of his throws, and uh, had 178 yards. Obviously, that, that interception, that pick six, which was the lone touchdown of the game, offensive or defensive, but let's go over to JT Daniels, okay? Because there's a lot of there. There are a lot of people who are trying to say that, oh my goodness, you know, DJ, uh, he he's he's overrated. He didn't perform well at all. Uh, you know, this this is a bust and all this other stuff. JT Daniels went 22 for 30, so a better completion percentage, 135 yards and an interception. Seems pretty comparable to me. Now, the key difference in this football game was George's ability to run the football, right? I mean, total yards, both teams were held to under, I mean, almost 250, right? Georgia was at 256. Clemson was at 180. I mean, that is, for, for both of these schools, those are anomalies. I mean, these, these really, these numbers, I don't think people quite understand just how impressive a defensive performance we saw on the field Saturday night. Now, certainly, Clemson has some issues on offense. We'll get to those in a second. Georgia has some questions and issues, I think, on offense. And I was even, you know, at the game talking to some Georgia fans that were sitting right in front of me, and we were having a good conversation. It was, you know, it was a fun environment, and I enjoyed, you know, we were going back and forth the whole time. And towards the end, when it was pretty apparent that Clemson was going to lose, I just turned around and said, listen, guys, you know, this is a great win for y'all. It certainly helps your resume, but I just really feel like if you're going to beat Alabama, who we you know knew hung a bunch up on Miami earlier in the evening, I was like, I think y'all are going to have to hit mid thirties. I said because Alabama's going to, you know, they're going to score at least mid twenties on y'all, even with this same type of defensive performance. I still think Alabama will hit the mid to high twenties. So if you're Georgia, you really got to be looking at the thirty mark. Like that's got to be your number to make you feel comfortable going up against. The Crimson Tide, and they agreed. They said, "Listen, I mean, this is a good win for us, but it by no means convinces us that we're going to be, you know, front runners to win the title this year and just blaze through everybody." Now we'll we'll see, um, but really, you look at the stats here, and they're very even across the board, right? You had basically, uh, you know, each team Clemson fourteen first downs, uh, Georgia with fifteen. Georgia had those two turnovers. Uh, Clemson with, with that single one that, again, resulted in that, that pick six. But even time of possession, Clemson 28 and a half minutes, Georgia 31 and a half. It really, though, came down to field position based off of special teams and punts, and Georgia controlled that for most of the game. Clemson's inability to run the football. Now, I know they recorded only two rushing yards, which is, the I believe, the third lowest total in school history, Clemson has two instances of negative rushing yards in school history. I believe one was in 1912 and one was in 1942. Don't quote me on those years, but I'm fairly certain those are accurate. Either way, though, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since Clemson almost finished with negative rushing yards, a team that in the 80s was known and renowned for their ability to pound the football over and over and over down your throat. 
so so two yards on 23 carries is not great at all. It's not going to win you many football games. Now, you take away the sack yardage that DJ got, right? He got sacked seven times. Uh, that certainly influenced that number. But Georgia was able to move the football on the ground more effectively than Clemson. And as strong as Clemson's defensive performance was, that right there is something that they'll have to work on. Uh, I, I think what was really interesting to me, and now we're going to kind of get into the, the nitty-gritty of this matchup here, but what was really interesting to me when I was watching this game was nothing was working in the first half for either team. Like, yes, Georgia was controlling the, the field position, and Clemson and Georgia were were you know trying to figure things out on offense. Like, there's always that period in the first part of a game, especially a big-time matchup, where you're trying to get comfortable. You could you could it was very obvious that both offenses were running high percentage completion throws for the quarterbacks, getting them comfortable, allowing them to establish momentum, get some consistency. But when we went into the locker room and it was 7-0, we came out and we saw a different type of offense being run by Georgia. All of a sudden, plays had a lot of window dressing. There were guys in motion constantly. The, the, you know, the, there were guys shifting around, and that resulted in not only Skalski, right, the, the middle linebacker who's the heart and soul of that Clemson defense, but all the guys on defense were looking to the sidelines. Okay, are we going to call an audible here? How are we going to adjust for the offensive formation? Clemson didn't do any of that on offense. They ran the same scheme. They changed nothing that was apparent to me. And they just kept trying you know, the same thing over and over and over like a broken record. I mean, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. Clemson's game plan in the second half is the definition of insanity. It didn't work in the first half. Why do you think it's going to work in the second half? You didn't allow your quarterback to establish a rhythm and momentum. Now, DJ settled in in the second half. It was very obvious. He came out, he played more poised in the second half. He put together a better, you know, better drives, getting the ball down the field than he did in the first, but it again, from a, from a play-calling, coaching standpoint, nothing changed. Nothing changed. And I think that's one of the differences in this football game. I really do. I mean, I, I, I understand a lot of people are, you know, on DJ, and he's got to play better, and he admits that, right? He admits that. He said, yes, you know, even his post-game press conference, I got to play better. This, you know, part of that is on me. Um, and I got to execute. So I, you know, I admire him for shouldering that responsibility. Tony Elliott, though, he did in his in his press conference on Monday, he didn't really indicate that he felt there was a need to change much. Much, uh, you know, this is a, a direct quote here um, from from Tony Elliott, uh, and I, I want to read. Uh, what he said here, because I, and I dissected a little bit. He says, um, quote, I didn't feel like we physically got outmatched. Now we got beat with some one-on-ones, but you're talking about NFL players going against NFL players. You're going to lose some one-on-one matchups. The biggest thing we got to do as an offense is just focus on the details, the little things, everything, everything and everyone being on the same page. That's the thing about offensive football. It's chemistry it's cohesion, it's all 11 on the same page, end quote. Now, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I necessarily 
agree with that because he starts off that quote by saying, I didn't feel like we were physically outmatched. I, watching that game, felt like the offensive line was constantly physically outmatched. They lost one-on-one battles all night. Uh, there were times when Georgia would send three guys on a pass rush and they still got to the quarterback. Like, you bring three, drop eight, and you still get pressure? Well, what's the quarterback supposed to do? I mean, what can he do in that situation? He, can, he can't do anything because you're bringing one or two less guys than you should have to bring to get pressure, and you're still getting pressure. So I, not only is he going to have to scramble, no one's going to be open because there's eight guys dropped back in coverage. Uh, that's, to me, that's the definition of being outmatched. When a team can bring three, three guys, okay, three guys, and get to the quarterback, you're outmatched on the O-line. I don't care what anybody says. And you could see that not only when DJ tried to drop back and pass, but when they tried to run the ball. Clemson got nowhere between the hashes. Nowhere. I don't think they had a run for more than seven yards up the hashes all night. The only time they were able to run the ball slightly effectively was a, was a little bit on the outside of the hashes, right? Between the hashes and 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 the numbers. I mean, that 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 that's it, really, for Clemson on the ground. Uh, now, again, you can't discredit Georgia and their preparation, again, and the caliber of players on that other side. It's a highly motivated defense. Could be one of the best in the nation. I think they were fourth last year in total defense. Um, you know, managing just 180 yards of total offense, two rushing yards, that's, that to me is just unacceptable. And, and the, the, if I'm Tony Elliott, I need to come out on Monday and I see, need to say, listen, our performance on Saturday, it doesn't matter what we think, there's no excuse for it, and we got to develop a game plan that makes sure that that never happens again. Th- that's what I want to hear from Tony Elliott. I don't want to hear, well, you know, I don't think we got physically outmatched. We just, you know, we lost some one-on-ones. No, 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 you didn't just lose some of them. You lost all of them. The O-line lost nearly all their one-on-one matchups all night long. I mean, very few plays was DJ able to sit in the pocket and go through any sort of progression. Now, it brings us to another point about this game, and that's probably... You know, obvious to anyone who watched, DJ will develop and get better when it comes to going through his progressions. Uh, it was it was quite obvious that you know after snap, if that first guy wasn't open, he was in full panic mode. Now by that time, typically he was under duress and either had to get rid of the football or take the sack. So it wasn't like he even had an opportunity throughout that game to go through his progressions. But it was very obvious watching, even from the nosebleeds where I was sitting, that he was just lasering on one guy, which is part of the reason I think that pick six happened. I know the defender undercut because supposedly the receiver ran the wrong route, but, I, I you know, DJ, and that'll, that'll come with reps. That'll come with reps. That'll come with, with, with practice. That'll come with more game experience. I'm not necessarily as worried about that side of things. I'm not worried about... DJ and his development and his ability because we all know he has the ability and we've seen Clemson develop players for over a decade now. But but the I would say the arrogance of Tony Elliott's comments there make me question if he you know sees what we all saw right on Saturday night. Like did he watch 
that O-line? Like, did Robbie Caldwell, the, the O-line coach, like, is he, was, was he watching that? Because, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. It was, it was pretty bad. Um, it, you know, again, it's hard to classify this as a beatdown because it was a 10-3 to football game. It was a one-possession game that could have gone either way, deep into the fourth quarter. Like, Clemson was never out of this football game. They, it, it felt like they were because their offense did nothing, you know, in terms of moving the football really in production. So even though it was a one-possession game, it felt like Clemson could have been down by as much as 28 at one point because they just couldn't move the football. You know, they might as well have been. Um, you know, the other thing, and this is my last point on this Clemson matchup because I do want to get to other games. There's, there's a lot to talk about as it relates to this. I could do a whole hour podcast on this show alone or on this game alone, but I want to move on. This is my last point. Clemson never, throughout this entire game, did anything with the middle of the field. Okay, And it was wide open. They never ran any simple routes to get there. Uh, Old Miss did this extremely well against Louisville last night. Uh, it depends on when you're listening to this, this show, but is at the time of this recording, that game on Monday night, Old Miss was running slants all over the field up the middle, just gashing Louisville. Now, I understand Louisville's defense is not Georgia's defense, okay? Completely different caliber of opponent, as that has been pointed out to me in some discussions I've had with friends. But there's some key points that, that I want to mention here as it relates to slants and, you know, their, their, their effectiveness. Because if they're used the right way, there are significant advantages, okay? First one, it gets the ball out quick, okay? It gets the ball out quick. If you've got an O-line that has trouble protecting your quarterback, don't you think that it would be better to get the ball out quick than have drop-back passes? I, I would I would say so. Now, you'll run a slant every play, but, you know, maybe mix it up a little bit. Okay, number two, it's a high-percentage completion throw. It, it, it establishes... Confidence in the you know with the quarterback, it gets the ball out to multiple wide receivers. Okay, you can have guys running slants, crossing each other. You can you can do out routes so that you know, you do all sorts of things. All right, I'm not someone that gets necessarily into the X's and O's of football plays, but you can draw that up, and you're giving multiple wide receivers reps and experience at the same time. Okay, that's your second benefit. The third, and I think probably the most important, is it keeps the defense guessing. The defense, which in this case is Georgia, they have to respect both the middle of the field and the perimeter. Now, why is that important? Well, Clemson's bread and butter for the last four to five years has been getting the ball out to the perimeter and making plays in space, right? Making guys miss with their skill players, uh, getting out into the open field. They got grass in front of them. If the defense has to respect the middle of the field, they're less likely to blanket cover the perimeter. And it, literally look at any Clemson game for the last four to five years to see how Clemson takes advantage of that, right? Because they've had a good running attack where they can go up the middle and it allows their skill players to get wide open. They make plays in space and you're, I mean, if you, if you, if you really want a good example, if you really want a good example of this and what this looks like, if you're having trouble visualizing, I want you to go back and I want you to watch the 2013 game between Clemson and Georgia. Season opener, week one, Saturday night in Death Valley, college game days there. It's Brent Musburger, Herb Street on the call. And Gurley 
breaks off like a 70-something yard run. Like, I think it's the first, maybe in the first score of the game. Huge play. Just gashes us on offense, on defense. And come around the next play, right? We kick off whatever. Clemson gets it. Uh, 25-yard line. Taj Boyd throws it over the middle to Sammy Watkins. He's, you know, he's covered, but he's still in the middle of the field, has a little bit of cushion, makes the grab, and what does Sammy Watkins do? He makes a play in space, kind of lowers his shoulder, hits a Georgia defender who didn't tackle properly, and Sammy's off to the races, and ain't nobody catching him. There's no one catching him. That is what I'm talking about. You put the ball where there's not blanket coverage, and you give your guys an opportunity to make plays. Clemson did not do that Saturday night. They did not do that. The offensive scheme was not set up that way, and there were minimal adjustments throughout that game uh, by Clemson's offense and Tony Elliott. So that's pretty much where I'm at. I mean, I I don't think it's a bad loss for Clemson. I don't think it's a season-ending loss, right? They're, They're still around in the playoff hunt. Their priorities may have to shift a little bit, you can't ignore the fact that Clemson basically will play no one for the rest of the regular season. However, uh, you know, it was only a seven-point loss, week one, neutral site location. Yes, there's a lot of noise about this game right now, but it will fade away as the season progresses. Uh, Clemson was not the only ranked team. I think eight ranked teams lost this past weekend. So certainly they were the highest ranked team to lose at three, Uh, But we saw Oklahoma struggle mightily with Tulane. We'll get into that a little bit later, in addition to some other um, top 10 teams, you know, as well. So overall, I think it was a great game. I, you know, just helping us feel out where both of these programs stand, identified some very obvious weaknesses for Clemson. And if you're Georgia, you're probably feeling pretty good. You know, you beat Clemson, uh, you know, team that's been in the national conversation the last decade now, uh, and that's another notch in, in, the, in the ladder that they're trying to climb for a national championship run. So I think it's an impressive win for the Bulldogs. Okay, let's take a break. We're going to come back and uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about the ACC. <laughs> uh, they had one of the worst opening weekends possibly ever for any Power 5 conference. Uh, it was not a great week for the ACC. We will break it all down. That's next. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of After Further Review. Again, I'm Jay Smith. Uh, Man, the ACC Week 1. Probably the worst weekend, opening weekend ever for the ACC. Uh, They had um, pretty high hopes, I think, you know, coming in. I I felt like they they probably felt like you know North Carolina was going to do well against Virginia Tech. Maybe Miami was going to give Alabama a game, and and Clemson could probably take down Georgia. Uh, well, they went zero and three in those matchups. They had uh, three teams ranked in the top fifteen. All of them lost. Uh, six ACC teams lost non-conference games. You got Duke dropping to UNCC. Uh, you had Georgia Tech losing to Northern Illinois. Uh, three of those six ACC uh, non-conference losses were to SEC teams. So you had Louisville losing to Old Miss, you had Miami losing to Alabama, and you had Clemson losing to Georgia. And then North Carolina obviously lost to Virginia 
tech. Um, you know, listen, I understand that the ACC, uh, especially the Coastal, has been down for what feels like now for a long, long time, right? It's always been this joke. It's Clemson's conference. No one else's. Nobody from the Coastal can compete, uh, which is unfortunate. It really is. I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I, I would prefer Florida State, Virginia Tech, Miami, maybe an NC State, right, to, to be competitive. Even the years when Boston College and Syracuse and Georgia Tech were quality opponents. There was a there was a time not too long ago when Duke was a good opponent in the ACC, and it just feels like all of these programs they're not even running in place. They're they're running backwards. Um, it, it's really it's a terrible weekend for the ACC. Terrible, terrible weekend. Uh, you know, been getting you know, just look at games like Duke losing thirty eight to thirty one to twenty eight. Excuse me, thirty one twenty eight. Uh, to UNCC, there were three touchdowns in the last three minutes. Duke did take the lead with like a minute and a half left, but they just had no defense, no answer to UNCC's offense, and uh, and UNCC got the go-ahead touchdown with like just a handful of seconds left. Um, first win for the uh, the 49ers, the Charlotte 49ers, against a Power 5 team, and... Um, you know, uh, you look at the rest of the conference, right? Boston College, uh, NC State, Pitt, Syracuse, Virginia, Wake Forest, they all won easily uh, against Group of Five or FCS opponents. So that's not really impressive there. there. There's just, there's nothing. I mean, when you look at the ACC standings, there's really just nothing that sticks out. Uh, again, the whole conference went seven and seven overall. Uh, the the Atlantic right now uh, has four teams with wins: BC, NC State, Syracuse, and Wake Forest. And in the Coastal, you've only got three teams with wins: Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Virginia. Everyone else has a loss already. Everyone else has a loss. Um, and when you compare that to conferences like the SEC, you get two teams lose. Vanderbilt and LSU, and LSU probably was expected to win. Vanderbilt certainly wasn't. So, really, you could say the SEC. I mean, you only have the one game that's a surprise there. Other than that, the conference would be thirteen and one. ACC seven and seven. That's nowhere near, nowhere near uh, competitive. Even even the Pac twelve, um, you know, isn't as bad off as the ACC. And you want to talk about. A rough opening weekend for the Pac-12 North. Only Oregon. Oregon is the only team from the Pac-12 North that won a game. Uh, Cal, Oregon State, Stanford, Washington, and Washington State all dropped their matchups, leaving the Ducks as the lone undefeated, I'm going to use air quotes there, team in the Pac-12 North. My goodness. Now, in the South, UCLA picked up an impressive win over LSU and and listen, I was I was picking LSU in that matchup. I felt like even though UCLA had looked impressive against Hawaii in that Week Zero game, I just felt like you know LSU was going to figure out how to bounce back after that 2020 year and and maybe get things you know righted a little bit and work with what they had. Uh, let me tell you, I think you know I talked about this with with a, a friend earlier today. If if LSU 
finishes around 500 or fails to make a bowl game, like how warm is Coach O's seat going to get? Because, uh, you know, first see, you know, season opener, week one, losses can be forgiven. And we'll see how they do, you know, the rest of the, of the, of the year, obviously. I mean, they have to McNeese State uh, next weekend. That, that should be a breeze. Central Michigan, I mean, there's really, you know, no one else out of conference they need to worry about, you know, Louisiana Monroe, like, no, nobody they need to worry about, but golly, Auburn, Florida, at Old Miss, which now looks very tough, at Alabama, and then they host a and I mean, that's three, four, maybe five, yeah, right there, that's four or five losses in conference, you add on that UCLA game, Tigers might be looking at a six and six season. They really might be looking at a six and six season. Now, I don't think Coach O will get fired if they go five hundred and make a bowl, just because the Gene Chiswick comparison was Chiswick won right in in twenty eleven or twenty ten. I think it's twenty ten with Cam Newton, and then two years later he was out after I believe a three and nine season. Um, so unless LSU is like two three wins, I, I I don't think Coach O gets fired, but certainly. His seat will get increasingly warm if they don't figure out a way to right the ship in Baton Rouge. I mean, it's just ugly. It makes you almost question how how did they uh, how did they get all that talent for that 2019 season? You know, I'm not trying to make any sort of accusation there, but it's a little suspicious. Um, but but really, this opening weekend I think uh, is mostly about the ACC and just how poorly. They played across the board, whether that was against SEC opponents, you know, other Power Five opponents. I mean, just across the land there for the ACC, it was a rough, rough look. And so I don't know where you go from here. Uh, you had three teams in the top 15. They, they all lost. And, you know, you look at the uh, at the rankings now, the, the new polls for Week 2 have, have come out. Uh, Clemson sits at six. They didn't drop too far, only three spots. Um, you do have uh, you do have Virginia Tech in there now at 19, and Miami and North Carolina at 22nd and 24th, respectively. But again, uh, you know, uh, who from the ACC is going to make any noise in the AP poll? I'm just not so sure. It's it's uh, it's not looking good for the. Atlantic Coast Conference. So terrible open opening weekend for them. Uh, we'll see if things get better, especially in the in the coastal. But um, I don't know if I'd hold my breath. I really wouldn't. It just looks like it's going to be another just terrible year for the ACC, and that's not good for Clemson. If they don't play another ranked team the rest of the year, that's it's going to really hurt their resume. So we'll keep an eye on that for sure. All right, one last break. We're going to come back, wrap up the show. We're going to talk about. Each of the uh, notable week one matchups, the outcomes, what the what we should take away from them, and uh, talk about how that'll uh, you know play out the rest of the season. That discussion is next. Welcome back to the show. Last segment of this episode of After Further Review. Again, thanks for tuning in. Whether you are watching the show on Facebook or if you are tuning into the AFR podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Do appreciate it. Uh, let's talk week one notable games, games that you probably uh, either saw or, or checked out the final scores to, but we'll, we'll talk about some takeaways from each. 
Uh, let's just start off with uh, some Thursday games. We had Ohio State taking on Minnesota. Uh, Buckeyes prevail 45-31 to over the Golden Gophers. Minnesota led late in this football game before Ohio State had to kind of reassert themselves and get back into it. Um, they outscored Minnesota 35-17 to in the second half. Uh, so they were able to put together an impressive second-half performance. I think if you're Ohio State... Um, you know, you have to be feeling good about your offense, right? C.J. Stroud went 13 for 22, almost 300 yards passing and four touchdowns. They were able to move the ball very well on the ground against a pretty good Big Ten defense. Uh, Minnesota, though, played well. I felt like they just they weren't able to close it down the stretch. Their defense looked gas, and uh, they weren't um, able to hang with Ohio State for 60 minutes. Not a disappointing performance. Again, it was a pretty close game. It just, uh, I think, again, shows the gap between Ohio State and the rest of the Big Ten. So, uh, let's see here. Some other good games to mention. We've talked about Clemson, Georgia. Uh, let's, do, let's do Alabama and Miami. Now, this is a game that some people were saying Miami may possibly find a way to win. I was still picking Alabama. Um, Alabama came out in midseason form in week one, like they always do, right? 44-13, to 13, a complete rout of the Hurricanes. Um, not much else to say about this one except for the fact that Bryce Young came in and lit it up, right? Four touchdowns, 350 yards passing. Um, really, Alabama moved the ball more through the air than on the ground, like their leading rusher, Brian Robinson had only uh, 60 yards with 12 carries. So even when they did run the ball, it wasn't like they were gashing the Canes' defense. I was impressed with what I saw from Miami, especially their front seven. It was just the secondary, man. Like the secondary for Miami just could not cover, and they just kept getting gashed with deep balls. And Bryce Young is, you know, he illustrated, I think, pretty good ability to be pretty precise, right? He has the accuracy. He has the arm. And, um... It was a big win for Alabama, and I think, you know, further cementing them as the, the number one team right now. Don't expect that to change unless they were to lose a game. So I think Alabama sits comfortably in the number one position. Let's talk about the number two team, however, Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Sooners escape 40-35 uh, to 35 over Tulane in a game that technically was supposed to be played at Tulane, then it was played at Norman, and Oklahoma was the away team. Very interesting setup there, obviously, because of the hurricane. However, it was a close matchup, right? Five-point game now. Important to note that Tulane put up 13 points in the fourth quarter. To get to that five-point margin, Oklahoma, though, was shut out in the fourth quarter. They didn't score um, at all in the fourth. In fact, they only scored three points in the second half. That's the key takeaway from this game for me is that Oklahoma, and I, and I said this, I said this on last week's show. I said, I think the problem for Oklahoma is that their offense is going to show up in spurts, right? It's not going to be a, a lights on, uh, you know, Oklahoma for 60 minutes. They're not going to be on fire the entire game. They're going to have issues on offense being consistent. And that's exactly what happened. They were able to put together an impressive performance in the, in the first half. And that was it, right? Scored 37 points in the first half to two lanes, 14. It was 14 to 37. Game felt over. 
And then all of a sudden, Tulane kind of clawed their way back into it. And Oklahoma wasn't, they weren't able to answer. They weren't able to continue to distance themselves from Tulane. So the big takeaway from this game for me is that while Spencer Rattler played very well, he, you know, didn't make a lot of mistakes. And he even said after the game, which I thought was interesting, he, he was, you know, quoted in his postgame presser saying, I think this was the most physical team I've ever played. Because, you know, Rattler, he's, he's played in some big games against some good opponents. But to give props to Tulane like that, I thought was impressive um, and, and, and noteworthy for sure. So you got to credit Tulane for hanging around. Certainly, though, some questions about the Sooners sitting at, uh, at number two. Let's look at, uh, let's look at a kind of a low, under-the-radar game, Iowa State in northern Iowa. This was a sloppy game, uh, tough to watch at times. Uh, Iowa State did prevail 16-10. to um, You know, Northern Iowa should not be given the Cyclones any sort of trouble. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, though, is that Iowa State just wasn't able to get it going on offense. They, they couldn't sustain long drives. They couldn't get down to the red zone. That was something that they, they really did very well last year. Iowa State could get, you know, could get in the red zone five, six, seven times a game, and usually they would come away with four five touchdowns uh, and a couple of field goals, but they just couldn't get that to that momentum to you know on, on Saturday. They they couldn't drive um, and they uh, they played well on defense, but again, Northern Illinois, like how how much can you really credit there? I mean, they they held them to nothing in the second half, shut them out in the second half, um, but it was a thirteen to ten game at halftime, and Iowa State didn't score that uh, that field goal until the, the fourth quarter. So, I mean, you know, there was six, six and a half minutes left when they kicked that field goal, a 21-yarder um, to cap off a, about a 60-yard drive. Um, but I think, again, you know, you could easily look at the fact that Northern Iowa had two turnovers that gave Iowa State back the ball as being the difference in this game. I mean, they, you know, were very even in, in time of possession, total yards, first downs. All offensive metrics were nearly identical. It was just that Cyclones forced, you know, two turnovers, and it's a six-point differential. I mean, I'm not going to say it was a exact replica of the Clemson Georgia game, but it was the same sort of vibe. It really was the same sort of vibe. These offenses were able to move the ball more effectively than Clemson or Georgia, but still, again, you know, it's just something to note because Iowa State sitting there at seven, uh, you know. They're going to have to uh, to improve, uh, especially when it comes to offense, if they want to compete in the postseason. Let's see, a couple more games. We've got time for a couple more. Uh, Penn State-Wisconsin, I watched this entire game. Wow, I, I regretted it uh, almost immediately. It was, a, it was atrocious. Um, Wisconsin, I think, was in the red zone like four or five times and came away with 10 total points. Uh, they turned the ball over twice in the red zone. Uh, sloppy, and it was nil-nil at half, and both teams had, had ample opportunity to score. Um, both teams got a, a, a touchdown in the third quarter, so we went to the fourth, all tied up, and then Penn State prevailed 16-10 uh, to 10 over the Badgers. Other than the woeful uh, offensive uh, just effectiveness and just execution um, by, uh, by both of these schools, I think, again, it goes back to that whole discussion we talked about with the Ohio State-Minnesota game in that, look, there's a clear difference between Ohio State and everybody else in the Big Ten. Like, I, I remember 
you know, as the season was getting closer and we were, we were in, you know, the summer months, people were saying, oh, you know, this, this is the year that the Big Ten really proves just how deep they are. And, uh, eh, I guess, I don't know. I mean, you could make that argument, but man, it really looks like Ohio State is just going to be the clear front runner all season long. Um, one final game I do want to note uh, is the the Indiana-Iowa game. Now, I had picked the Hawkeyes to win that matchup, talking about last week how it was you know, going to be a, a really good test to determine what kind of team is going to prevail and be successful in the Big Ten this year. Is it going to be a defensive-minded team in Iowa, or is it going to be an offensive-minded team in Indiana? Well, we got our answer on Saturday. The Hawkeyes beat down the Hoosiers 34-6. to uh, Michael Penix did not play well. He was, 30, he was uh, 14 for 31, only 150 yards passing with three interceptions. And, uh, you know, Iowa, a team that wasn't necessarily offensive-focused, still managed to put up 34 points, which in most Big Ten games, that's enough to win, right? The Big Big Ten, you know, you're you're usually hitting mid to high 20s, maybe low 30s. So if you're Iowa and you're looking at, you know, how do you stack up against the rest of the big boys in your conference, I think you got to feel really, really good. I really do because you look at how close Indiana took Ohio State uh, last season. Uh, you look at how badly Penn State and Wisconsin looked in their matchup against one another. And if you're Iowa, you're looking around going, Dang, are we the are we the second best team in the conference right now? Like, what's going on? Uh, impressive stuff by by the uh, the Hawkeyes. And you know, if you're Indiana, you're gonna have to regroup. You're gonna have to uh, to figure out what went wrong and what you need to do next week so that that doesn't uh, doesn't happen again. Because they just were abysmal on offense, couldn't get anything going, and their defense really couldn't stop Iowa because they just again Iowa was just grounding away, you know, ground and pound the whole game. And they were able to put up a pretty impressive number, 34 total points uh, against the Hoosiers. But yeah, great week one slate, tons of fun games, games I didn't even get to mention, like Texas, Louisiana, Notre Dame, and Florida State. Impressive stuff, really, out of Florida State. You want to talk about some some fight and some determination. What I saw out of the Seminoles on, uh, on Sunday, I think they played a yeah, Sunday night against Notre Dame, it was probably the most life I've seen out of the Florida State program, most life I've seen out of Tallahassee in three or four years, really since Jimbo left. Because Florida State, you know, there was a time really even last season when there was a whole controversy over players sort of quitting and not, you know, not really giving it their all. And, and, and so to see the effort they put on in that fourth quarter, scoring 18 points uh, and holding Notre Dame, you know, shutting out Notre Dame in the fourth quarter to force overtime, yes. They weren't able to prevail in overtime, but still, I was really impressed out of what I saw from the Seminoles on Sunday. So I'm excited for week two. I'm going to have the the breakdown for that and the predictions for week two a little bit later in the week with a new show. Uh, That's all the time we got, though, for this episode of After Further Review. Man, it was a jam-packed one full of uh, of great stuff. Um, I know that Clemson-Georgia discussion ran a little long, but, uh, I mean, I just... I just had a lot to say about that one. There was there was a ton of ton of stuff out there, and that certainly is the game that uh, everybody is talking about right now. So, uh, like I said, though, both teams certainly have some things they'll need to work on, especially if you're Clemson. 
nothing insurmountable, nothing insurmountable, but some uh, some serious issues that will need to be addressed. So we'll see you uh, here again for later in this week, right? We've got a new episode coming out later in the week with some predictions for week two. Until then, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jay Smith, and this has been After Further Review.